When it comes to trading strategies and analyzing markets, there are a number of ways to skin a cat. Obviously, I've always focused primarily on technical analysis and then understanding the fundamentals of what's happening with markets. But on-chain analysis is a huge part of strategies used to be a successful trader in crypto. Not my core competency, but as usual, I like to bring on experts who understand what we're discussing much better than I do so that I can learn alongside you. Today, we have Will Clemente, who is going to share his ideas on how to become an on-chain analyst and trader, some of the things he's looking at, and we will obviously discuss some of the big news stories and topics of the day. You guys don't want to miss this. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and gently uh, caress the like button. Do whatever you want. I don't even know why we tell you at this point to subscribe to the channel and to hit the like button. It feels like it's part of being in the matrix and we need to all opt out of uh, that, that habit because if you're here, you've probably subscribed to the channel and you're not just going to hit the like button because I told you to. Anyways, I digress. Going back to the topic at hand, as you guys have seen, we've been somewhat restructuring the content on the channel of late, trying to give a definitive structure to how it will happen. Monday, obviously, we do macro. We had Mike McGlone. We have guys like James Lavish uh, coming up. Tuesday, traders. So it's going to be your favorite traders from crypto Twitter and beyond. Wednesday, we want to focus on on-chain because obviously I find it to be a huge gap in my own knowledge, even though I follow it. Uh, relatively closely. Thursdays, of course, we have our roundtable every week, and then Fridays, a review of the news. So today is the first day we're doing on-chain, and we could not have a better guest, of course, than Will Clemente. I'm going to bring him on right now. Will, welcome, man. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course. So uh, listen, as I've said many times, this is not really my core competency. I think I understand the basic metrics, but I also find that the way the same data, much like technical analysis, is analyzed, you can look at the same chart and get two completely different versions of what it means depending on the on-chain analyst. So I guess the first question is, where should people start? What are the most important, clear metrics they should be following if they want to understand on-chain analysis? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my opinion on on-chain has definitely evolved over time. Um, you know, I started following it, I would say, in 2020, late 2020. Um, you know, I, first of all, on-chain is like a very new thing. Um, many of the kind of backbone metrics that are used now really weren't created until like late 2018, 2019. Um, and this latest market cycle was kind of the first one that this, I would say, new, you know, nascent form of analysis was actually, you know, put to the test in real time. Um, and along the way, I think we learned a lot of things about certain metrics that do work, don't work, uh, and the nuance behind some of the reasoning of those things. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, originally looking at things like, you know, exchange inflows and outflows, things like that have, have definitely proven to not really have much signal as the market's gotten more nuanced. Um, you know, for example, you could have coins moving to exchanges that are simply just people adding collateral to a futures position, or you could have some whale. I don't know if you remember this, but going back to, I think it was February or March of 2021, um, the market was like super jacked up on derivatives. Um, I think funding rates were at like 200% like annualized or some crazy shit like that. And uh, you had this alert that went out on like a crypto quant uh, telegram group. And it was like, 
uh, $200 million or $300 million of BTC sent to exchanges. And uh, I'm pretty sure like, because within 30 seconds, the market started dumping. I'm pretty sure that kind of catalyzed uh, a lot of these like super long, uh, you know, derivatives traders to, to freak out and close out their positions, which kind of caused a cascading effect. Um, so, you know, when people were paying that much attention to the exchange flows, um, for some of these big whale guys, it was a very easy way to kind of manipulate the price. And, and you know, if they wanted to, you know, all right, let, 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 let's trim off some of this, uh, you know, froth in, in the derivatives landscape. Let's go ahead and just send, you know, send some Bitcoin to exchanges. We'll just leave it there until they freak out, flush out, and then we'll buy back our position, right? And so, like, things like that, um, you know, also the exchange outflows, um, you know, they could be, you know, simply, you know, people moving Bitcoin to custody providers, uh, all, all, you know, all of this is just a point to say that, you know, I don't necessarily think it's as simple as coins being moved to exchanges means that people are selling coins moving out of exchanges uh, means that people are buying. And, and, you know, with that, if you look at exchange flows over the last year or so, I mean, they've been perpetually down, but so has been the Bitcoin price. So I don't really think that's <laughs> of much signal. Um, you know, things also like, for example, I used to try to follow like the whales holdings and the premise of that was I would look at the, you know, on-chain addresses over, uh, let's say, like a thousand Bitcoin. And then you filtered out some of the labeling that someone like a glass note had done on, you know, exchanges or uh, OTC desks, et cetera. Um, the problem, though, is just you're, you're just not capturing the nuance of, um, you know, a, a quote unquote, you know, whale could be, um, you know, not necessarily an actual, you know, uh, whale it could just be a custodian. Um, it, it's just you're, you're missing a lot of uh, the, the actual labeling that you're kind of making all these presumptions in terms of those flows. Uh, so I just haven't found much, much actionable use in those things. Um, now, on the flip side, what I, what I will say that I have found, you know, actionable use in are these like relative valuation metrics. So, you know, if we look at something like a uh, realized capitalization of, of Bitcoin. So this is looking at instead of the market capitalization, this looks at the last time that coins were moved. So, you know, let's say a coin was last moved at a dollar you multiply the amount of coins that were you know, bought at a dollar times that price instead of uh, the amount of coins times the current market price that would give you, you know, you add up the sum of that to give you the market capitalization. So it's basically showing you um, the kind of aggregated cost basis uh, of the market. And so you can compare that to market price and get basically like this relative valuation model. Uh, something like that I found very useful. Um, and, and then, you know, on top of that, I'll, I'll also say that, you know, I used to just follow on chain partially because like from a content perspective, I felt like that was kind of my unique ad to the Twitter, yeah, you know, landscape, dominate. <laughs> sure. but, um, but, you know, in, in terms of like actionable trading, you know, the way I kind of view on chain now, it's like, it's kind of this contextual view of like the high time frame, um, you know, market cycle, if you will not necessarily something that should be used for like, you know, multi-week swing trade or something like that. You know, when I get into that much granularity, when I'm trading like a shit coin, like a sushi that I've, you know, been like publicly, you know, posting my thoughts on over the last few weeks, something like that, I'm mainly just watching price action. And then more importantly, in my opinion, is the derivatives landscape and, and liquidity. And we can get into that in a moment as well. Sure. I, I love all of those takes actually, because it aligns very well with my 
very brief attempts in the past at using on-chain and finding that it was largely noise. And especially now the inflows, outflows, I love that you pointed that out because I think a lot of the outflows at this point are not an indication that people are buying. It's just an indication that people don't trust exchanges as much after Celsius and Voyager explosions. Of course, we're going to see a lot of people moving their coins from places where they don't think that they're secure. I've also noticed a trend in the past that you know I always kind of questioned, which is that a lot of people view Bitcoin adoption through a lot of these metric, metrics and utilize it to say that you know we're getting this massive adoption of Bitcoin or any other coin. But to me, it's largely just metrics that we have more people speculating, which isn't necessarily true adoption. I don't know if that lines up with what you see, but like, you know, hash rate going up or more wallets being open. Doesn't it matter more why somebody's opening a wallet than the very fact that they might be opening it to go trade on Uniswap? Or something? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I do think like though in like an aggregated context, you know, when you see like a, you know, multi-month uptrend and, you know, new, you know, new addresses or, you know, hash rate ripping all-time highs. I do, I do think that has like some signal of, of, uh, you know, network growth. And we can get into hash rate in a moment. I know we were talking briefly about the, the miner situation, but yeah, I mean, I get, I get what you're saying in terms of like adding the nuance there, but I would say, you know, if you see like a multi-month trend of one of those things, I think it's pretty difficult not to say that that's like underlying adoption. Yeah. I mean, I have my doubts that we'll ever see a meaningful drop at any point in, you know, wallets and, and yeah. such just for the nature of the market. But I, I do if I could just add, I think, I think like, I think one interesting thing to look at is like, if you look at wallet, like growth in general, whether it's like, uh, like active addresses or like new addresses, whatever it may be, like the important thing for like people who are, you know, like long-term holders in crypto or whatever, um, you know, these things base out higher every single cycle. So like, obviously you see like a super, you know, high run up in the bull market, you know, everyone's coming in because this thing's going up only everyone's like, right, I don't need to get a piece. Um, all the people that are only buying it, they have no idea what it is. They just see the price going up. Right. And then what happens is, is like every time we go back into the bear market, sure. A lot of those like, quote unquote tourists leave, but you have a fair amount of people who actually, you know, do their due diligence on the asset, you know, discover what it is through the price going up, which is essentially marketing for Bitcoin. It's the best marketing scheme you could think of price running up. Um, and then, you know, those people stick around. And then what you see is every bear market, a significantly higher base in where those, you know, measures of, you know, network activity basically bottom out. So I do think like, that's just something, you know, I guess to note for, for, you know, kind of where we are in terms of down 70% for listeners that are maybe, you know, losing a little conviction is that, you know, we are apparently, you know, looking at the data now, we are, you know, forming yet another uh, higher low in terms of that network activity. Oh, yeah, I, I 100% think we're bottoming from almost every metric you can look at. Maybe that's worth <laughs> discussing in a bit as well. But I want to go back to the conversation about hash rate. It's interesting. You see a lot of sort of the bigger Bitcoiners pointing to the fact that hash rate is at an all-time high as this massively bullish thing, which in context, one context it is, of course, because it means the network is more secure. But we're also seeing a massive flush out and just destruction of mining profitability and some of the bigger miners as a result, right? When you have an increase in hash rate alongside increase in electricity costs and competition, that's going to be problematic for profitability and make it very difficult to make money mining, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think I think you said it well. Like the way you can think of miners is they're basically long Bitcoin spot, um, which also means they're indirectly also long the price of the ASICs, uh, and then they're short hash rate and by product by byproduct of that short difficulty as well. Um, and so, as you just said, basically everything, and they're also short energy costs. Um, you know, basically everything that 
goes into uh, you know being a successful miner is going against miners at the moment. You've got Bitcoin price down 70 plus percent. You've got the ASICs miners, which are in terms of price, they generally kind of perform as like higher beta to Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin goes up, they're going to go up a bit more. If Bitcoin goes down, they go down a bit more. Uh, those are down somewhere between 70 to 80 percent, depending on the model. Uh, and then all these uh, Bitcoin public Bitcoin mining stocks are also down 80 percent. And then, as you mentioned, uh, energy prices are up in 2022, as in everything else, as with everything else. So, yeah, you know, miners are in a really tough spot. You can look at something called hash rate. Um, I'm sorry, hash price, which is a derivative of uh, hash rate in price. So basically, you're looking at the uh, the amount of hash it takes um, to you know mine a certain amount of, of Bitcoin. And what you can see is that value is at all time lows right now. Uh, so, you know, it's showing you basically a, as a visual for like this minor margin compression. Um, you know, what happens is, is I guess just like from a fundamental standpoint to explain um, for listeners, like, you know, in a bull market, everyone wants to start mining Bitcoin, right? Because it's going up only. And so you get a bunch of these orders for these machines. Um, they have a lag, though, from when they're ordered to when they start coming online. So, you know, granted, we have like a pretty small sample size in two from 2013 and 2018. Uh, but what we've seen historically is that there's kind of a lag between the peak in, in Bitcoin's underlying spot price and the peak in hash rate. And that's because there's a kind of that lag between when you can order the machines, actually get them shipped to you. You also have to build out the shelf space to house the machines, all things like that. Um, so we tend to see that lag. Uh, the issue with that is, as we just mentioned, that's kind of a worst case scenario for miners with hash rate ripping higher and, and price continuing to go lower. Uh, so, you know, basically... Each historical, you know, Bitcoin bear market has kind of the, the bottom has been marked out by some, you know, regime of uh, minor capitulation. Now, granted, we're, we're kind of on the verge of one now, but we, we did have one back in June. Um, you know, if you remember going back to June, we had Core Scientific having to sell 7,200 BTC for about 170 mil. Um, which was yeah, they've common. got 20 left. <laughs> You've got 20 left. So, right. I mean, I mean, this is, this is the good news, uh, I guess for us and, and not for core, um, you obviously don't want to, you know, wish bad on anybody, but you know, it seems like, you know, core out of all the miners, they're the largest public miner in terms of hash rate share. Um, you know, they're under immense financial stress, um, you know, for anyone who didn't see in an SEC filing, uh, last week, they announced that they're on the verge of bankruptcy filing for bankruptcy. Um, not sure if there's been an update on that, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, they only have 25 Bitcoin left to sell, so it's not necessarily a market risk. Um, it, you know, if anything, and, and we were talking about this briefly before we uh, before we started, you know, as I just mentioned, they're the largest portion of public hash rate at 4.9%, I believe. So, you know, if if theoretically in the in the restructuring hash, you know, came offline, that's actually a net good thing for the rest of the miners. Um, but you know, Scott, maybe you have more insight into this to me because I'm not like a distressed debt guy, but I don't think in the financial restructuring the miners will come offline. I think they're toast. Uh, but but uh, I agree with you. I think the company is toast. I should say I don't think that there's any uh, viable way to survive without probably chopping it up and pulling yeah. a Richard Gere and Pretty Woman and selling off the assets and you know. But uh, I, I like you don't think it will generally affect hash rate. I think that it will be easily replaced. And now we got the news yesterday that Argo is also struggling yeah. and could potentially go into Chapter Eleven. Different reason. They had basically a $27 million investment lined up that fell through at the last second. So it looks like they could be following along. But I do think that's the beauty of the Bitcoin network, right? There's really no bailouts. It's a free market. Somebody stronger steps in and does it. I just hate to see it because I, I really like these guys. <laughs> I, I'm friendly with Darren Feinstein from Core Scientific. I would hate to see this happen. 
I do wonder where this rip and hash rate has been coming from. Like the cynical part of me is like, is someone trying to like squeeze Somebody's out the other miners? Yeah. 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 Like, you know, if, if you're some huge miner that's like really well capitalized, like, are you just trying to squeeze out all the other inefficient guys like Rockefeller style, even if you're like, yeah, you take the loss because you can weather it. And, right. and I think that's one great premise. I think a lot of it in my mind goes back to what you discussed, which is that during the bull market, all these new miners were purchased. They were extremely delayed. People built the rack space and probably felt like they had to put them online regardless of what the market was like. So if you, you know, you receive thousands of these miners and the price is at 19,000, it was at 60 when you ordered them, you're not going to sit on them, right? You're going to put them online and hope that you are the stronger entity, but that's just a theory as well. But we do yeah. know for a fact that uh, there was this massive boon in mining in, in 21 and everybody was buying them. Yeah. And the, I guess the other like non-cynical take and like hopium take would be that you have some, you know, large energy, energy producer that's decided to use their excess energy. Maybe they're just flaring it off or whatever. And it finally decided to plug into Bitcoin mining. I don't know which it is, but those are kind of my two main theories here. I would imagine it's just a combination of all of them, but it, it is sort of speaks to the evolution of on-chain analysis that we were talking about at the beginning. There used to always be this endless debate of why price and hash rate move so closely together and which one was leading sort of the chicken and the egg. And now we have a hash rate at an all-time high and price, you know, 70% yeah. off the highs. So pretty much killed one of the greatest debates <laughs> that we ever had in on-chain analysis, right? Sort of proves it's nascent and we're still learning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So listen, you also obviously go well outside of on-chain now. It was interesting to hear you sort of say, listen, uh, you know, we tried it at the beginning and now it's become more of a contextual thing than actionable day-to-day -day trading data. So that means you're primarily using technical analysis. And I have obviously noticed that you're aggressively trading sushi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, man, I think, uh, you know, I'm just like a very open-minded person and I try to just, you know, evolve my thinking as, as needed. And, you know, I think it's just been clear that from like an active allocation perspective, um, you know, like swing trading type things, I guess some people would consider, you know, active allocation, like, you know, taking a trade every like two or three years to like trade the broader cycle. But yeah, for like on-chain, um, it really hasn't been actionable for like, you know, intra, intra month, intra week stuff. Yeah. I, I definitely have found the liking to, um, using price action, but especially, in confluence with other things, um, mainly I would say breaking down into three things like liquidity, uh, derivatives, and also the order books. And when you can kind of get a confluence of those things with price action, I think that's really helpful. Um, you know, especially if, you know, let's say you look at like a liquidity heat map on something like a high block or like a Kingfisher, which basically try to like estimate where uh, derivatives positions have been opened and like where yeah. pockets of liquidity are, right? Um, so you can look at kind of a level that that's shown on there. Um, you can also look at a level perhaps where there's a large amount of bids or asks in the book. And then you can also look at, um, you know, an important contextual, uh, you know, area for, for price action, you know, whether it's some key supportive resistance, right? And so like, just in theory, like, let's say price is at key support, you've got some large bids that are being filled You've got the, um, you know, the liquidity delta, which is high blocks look at the difference between, you know, in proximity to price between the aggression of longs and shorts. Uh, and then also you look at the derivatives, um, you know, metrics, open interest and funding rates. And you've got, you know, mooning open interest on like increasingly negative funding. Like that's very high confidence across yeah. 
four or five different tools that you probably do for for little reversal. Um, and then obviously the the inverse of that, uh, you know, at, at resistance. And so th those are the types of things that I really found useful. Uh, and yeah, I guess to get into sushi, like sushi has been trading extremely clean. Um, you know, I've been trading shit coins, not as long as you, but I've been trading shit coins for, I would say like a good year, year and a half now. And, and sushi has been extremely efficient in terms of it's been squeezing all the liquidity out to one side. So, you know, it'll hook in a bunch of shorts, squeeze all the shorts on the way up, distribute into the late longs, and then rinse all those guys until the last late long is rinsed out and then squeeze it right back up once once shorts are, are hooked back in. And it's been trading in this very clean daily uh, channel. So, you know, yeah. it's done this. Long the bottom of the range and short the top. And, and, yeah. and keep going until you're proven wrong and you stop out on that last one. It's like yeah, the, ex it's one of the more exactly. obvious strategies. Yep. And I think it's one of the one of the few coins that I would say has a narrative in this market right now. There's really not that many like thematic narratives, which in, in my opinion, like I view like the altcoins very cynically. I think they're just speculative vehicles with like a little, you know, um, I mean, there, there's some underlying like technological, you know, improvement with, with these things and like innovation. But in terms of how they trade, a lot of it's just narrative and, and like thematic things. And then you just tie that into like, you know, is that being reflected in, in price action? And then you get that you know, feedback loop between the narrative and price action. And I think for sushi, like the underlying narrative right now has basically been for the last one that there's like a sushi turnaround narrative. So they, they brought in a new head chef in uh, Jared Gray, uh, Cumberland and Golden Tree both backed sushi. Uh, Golden Tree has like a $10 million position according to the on-chain wallet that I have tagged. Uh, and they've added to that multiple times over the last few weeks. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think the way that I'm, I'm thinking about this is like, if they do one implementation, if Golden Tree pushes forward one, one protocol implementation, um, you know, set a new roadmap for the protocol or whatever it may be, uh, market participants are going to extrapolate out more changes, right? So I think like the big thing with all coins is like, and, and you, you see this with things like Cardano, right? Like I've never traded Cardano, but like the reason why Cardano ripped higher is because people had expectations of something actually being done. And so like you get this like, very cynical take with with all coins where like actually delivering on something is, is like the most bearish that's, thing that's, that can happen thing. you just got to keep the hype going and I, that's not a statement I, I i make no statements about cardano specifically but you're absolutely right once there's an actionable product and people kind of lose interest because you don't have the buy the rumor sell the news event you just right. find the rumor right exactly and like with sushi right now you know they've, they've yet to release that you know first kind of implementation or you know protocol roadmap but I think once that's once that is released, then you'll have market participants extrapolate out, you know, two, three, four more changes because you know not only has Golden Tree said that they're going to come in and you know try to turn things around, but now you actionably are seeing you know a protocol implementation being made. Yeah. Uh, and so that that's kind of been my thesis as to um, you know why I've why I've been bullish over the last few weeks. Yeah, I actually have Jared Gray on the roundtable tomorrow and we're doing a, a DeFi roundtable. So interesting that you bring up uh, sushi today, but I'm interested to listen to I, I just brought up the sushi chart real quick and painted out that channel so people can kind of see what we're talking about here on the daily. That gives the, the general idea. There's a couple comments over here. Hugh says on-chain has been garbage for months. I think you could argue that inside that all analysis, on-chain, technical, otherwise, works primarily in trending markets and doesn't work particularly well when the market is chopping sideways. So I don't think that's unique to on-chain in this case. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I also think like, 
a lot of these valuation metrics, you know, are just in these levels where I think it's like a good time to be accumulating heavily. Um, you know, a couple of them like the market cap to realized cap metric we talked about, uh, short-term holder cost basis relative to long-term holder cost basis. Uh, I could pull that up real quick, I guess, to give sure if you're gonna yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And I, I love your point while you're doing that about uh, finding that liquidity and, and the liquidations. Uh, Zorin and, and uh, Trip ISO, who's an old friend of mine, put me onto that quite a long time ago. And I, I'm always impressed with how they use those and, and how yeah. accurate they can be for, for the liquidations. That's from High Block, right? I mean, that's primarily what they yep. do. Here you go. Here's, yeah, here's yeah. The, here's ISO is great with the, with the heat map for sure. They were, yeah, they were. I, I remember when uh, Zorin had like in his bio, like, uh, liquidity theory. I was like, what does that even mean? No. Yeah. I mean, they somewhat created it and they built that entire course and just got, yeah. yeah, they're, they're, they're great guys. And I, like I know, I've known triple very long time. I saw he's, he's really a great trader. So they, they, they kind of put that on my map. No, yeah. hundred percent. Cool. This is, um, so this is the on-chain cost basis metric. It looks at the short-term holder cost basis and the long-term holder cost basis. So the premise here is that whenever the short-term holder cost basis goes below that of long-term holders, it's a good signal to accumulate because short-term holders have capitulated out of the market. Um, so if you look, this was the first cross here in 2011, basically marked the exact bottom tick. Uh, here's the one in 2014, which basically coincided with the exact bottom tick. Uh, 2018, uh, a few days after the bottom tick. And then recently we've been in this period of, of Across over the last, you know, three, four weeks or so. Um, so this, in my opinion, you know, while this green shading, which means that the short-term holder is below the long-term holder, that indicates a good time to accumulate. But for those who are kind of waiting for confirmation or more, I guess, momentum oriented, I think what you can look for is the cross of the short-term holder cost basis back above that of long-term holders that you see here, you see here, you see here and we've yet to see currently so you know of course you're missing the bottom slightly right uh, you know look at god forbid. god forbid you don't buy the dead bottom <laughs> but you know you're, you're 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 basically paying the the price for confirmation so uh, i gotta say that that's kind of the actionable way you can think about using this but you know something like this sure like you know it, it, it's not super exciting it's just telling you it's a good time to accumulate but again i think that's kind of where uh, the, the value in terms of on-chain has, has been is for kind of uh, people who are, I would say, like swing hodlers, if that makes sense. You know, people who are kind of like swing trading the broader. Yeah, trading cycle. around their core position. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's a good time to ask you before I, I let you go. I know we're running up against time then. So general thought on the market here. That, that appears to show that we are bottoming, my opinion. I mean, when we hit that bottom in June, I said, Nobody knows the future, but I said I think that's the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And if we and if we go lower, I think it'll be one of those ma ma major capitulation wick, uh, wicks. Could be because of miners, something like that. But I feel like we are bottoming, and bottoming is a process, not really a price, right? So, do you agree, or are you in the we're going to 10k camp? <laughs> uh, look, man, I think first of all, like you know, according to a lot of the, the on-chain related stuff that we just looked at, you know, I think we're in an area of value. Uh, I think the order books are also showing that as well. Um, you know, if we look at, you know, several of like the major spot books, if we look at like Coinbase, uh, Binance, you're seeing pretty heavy demand, especially on Coinbase uh, from like 18K and below. Um, we all which, have bids, right? I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not expecting them to fill, but I've bid every thousand dollars down to like nine, of course, because yeah. if, yeah. if it happens, I'm going to be there. Yeah, and it's like, 
you know, it, it tends to be the case that like when everyone wants to buy a certain level, it tends to kind of get front ran a bit. Um, so, you know, I, I would say like if we did, <laughs> I, as you just said, like, you know, if we were to wick down there, I would expect it to get bought up like very quickly because there's heavy demand in the books there. Um, but I, I feel pretty constructive, you know, also when we look at like everything that's overhang, from, you know, above the market from, you know, World War Three and, and nuclear war being imminent and, you know, like kind of the, the worst macro situation in the last like, you know, three to four decades, I guess, aside from 2008 and maybe the early 2000s. Um, you know, I guess some could argue that this is worse because it's like a total I think this sovereign debt crisis. And, but, and uh, I think it's worse because it's not simply one thing. It's just, right. It feels like it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you know, in the face of all that news, Bitcoin has still held 19K. This, you know, magical internet money has still held 19K. I mean, I think, you know, thinking about what would have to take it lower, it would have to be some like, you know, major credit crisis or correlation to one moment. Uh, which, you know, if that was to take place, though, I would expect the Fed, you know, if you had like a, you know, dysfunctioning of the treasury market, I think the Fed would step in and at least temporarily, you know, fix that, which would, pro you know, provide relief to Bitcoin as well. So you know, that, that, that's kind of my thinking. And, you know, I've been averaging in, um, you know, slowly every time we get towards, you know, the bottom end of the range. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remain constructive. The other thing as well is, you know, my time horizon on the, on you know, the, buys that i've been averaging in you know i do a fair amount of you know trading with something like a shit coin like sushi but you know with my with my bitcoin buys you know these aren't buys where i'm looking to you know sell at 28k or something right these are you know multi-year type of type of buys so you know I, my risk tolerance and my conviction and like the long-term picture for bitcoin and like what's on the back half of this fed tightening cycle and what that'll catalyze for for bitcoin you know you know if i'm buying here at you know 18 19k and Bitcoin draws down to 15 and, you know, wicks down there. I mean, that, that for me, that's, you know, I'm not going to really you know, feel a thing or like, you know, uh, be severely underwater to the point that like, you know, I'm like not being able to sleep at night, you know. Uh, how um, old are you? I'm 20. Yeah. See, I'm 45. So obviously it's different. <laughs> but when I was 20, I was a complete degenerate loser. So it's it's wonderful to see that there's actually 20 year olds in the world right now who uh, have a long term view and <laughs> are intelligent <laughs> and investing because that took me till uh, long after I was 20 to actually have that uh, level. But even for me, I'm well, 45 and I still view it that way. Right. If it happens yeah. when I'm 80, great for my kids. Right. Yeah. No, 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah, that's always been my approach. Well, I know you've got to go, man. I really appreciate your time and, and you being on here. I've been following you for a long time. Everybody, uh, it's Will Clemente III or 111. What is your, where, where yeah, your Twitter? Yeah, it, it's III, yeah. I'm, I'm the third, yeah. so. He's the third. What are the first two doing right now? Are they uh, on-chain uh, analysts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm no. I'm feeling no, grandpa no. might not be. Yeah, no, grandpa's uh, grandpa just got moved into a retirement home, so his on chain uh, his on chain career on chain over. days are over. Maybe now yeah. he'll have time to really uh, dig into to the metrics. Well, yeah, guys, go. everybody follows. Is there anything else uh, where anywhere else that people can check you out or find your inf your information or follow what you're doing? Sure, I guess just to to plug a little bit. Um, just recently launched uh, this venture, Reflexivity Research. Uh, we're a dual arm entity. Uh, on one side of the house, we have prop trading desk. On the other side, uh, we sell research from everything from uh, DeFi, Bitcoin, fundamental Ethereum analysis, and global macro. That's not all done by me. I have a team of really smart people who are uh, smart where, where I'm not necessarily strong. So, um, you know, if that's something you're interested in, be sure to check that out. If not, I post a lot of my thoughts on Twitter. And uh, aside from that, thanks a lot, Scott. I had a lot of fun.
Thank you, Will, man. And everybody, uh, please give him a follow and check it out. I'm going to let him go, and then I'm going to answer a few of your guys' questions, then we'll get out of here. Thanks again, Will. Appreciate it. Take care, man. Thank you. I just see that there's some uh, questions over here, so I'll try to get to them uh, and not uh, – you can ask me. How come we are bottoming if macro is getting worse? I think it's debatable whether macro is getting worse, honestly. You have to remember that macro getting worse is really about the perception – of what could happen versus the reality. So it's about expectation. I do agree that the world is getting worse, but everybody now expects the world to get worse. They expect the 75 bit rate hike today. By the way, that's coming in four hours. We'll see what the Fed's going to do. They expect a 50 hike potentially at the next meeting, and then they expect it to wind down with potentially 25. So anything that's not worse than that will actually be viewed as good news or sideways. And as Will made the great point, Bitcoin's chopping sideways while all these other things are dropping, while currency markets are breaking. That's actually a good sign because people seem to already forget that historically Bitcoin has been an uncorrelated asset that has offered idiosyncratic risk. And we have this correlation increase when markets are bad, but all assets become correlated during the dump. And then you see when they decorrelate, which are going to perform better. I talk about it all the time, but you go back to March of 2020, very obvious that the asset you wanted to be in when markets bottomed, and by the way, in March of 2020, everyone thought that the stock market was going to go much lower than it did. There was disbelief. But what asset do you want to be in? You want to be in the one that doubles stocks, or you want to be in the one that went up 17 times, crypto. So I think that now, if you think there's a chance we are bottoming, it is a good time to buy, even if it goes lower, because your upside is so much more massive, right? You guys may not remember, but in March of 2020, when the stock market bottomed, April and May were the worst performing months in history for hedge funds because there was so much disbelief that the market was actually bouncing. Everyone thought it was a cat, a dead cat bounce. Everyone thought that it was a bull trap and the market just kept coming up. And hedge funds, the smartest money, the biggest money on Wall Street absolutely got slaughtered in what was arguably the best possible moment to make money getting long any market in history. Maybe the bottom of the Great Depression, bottom of the Great Recession. But if you got long stocks and had conviction that was the bottom and followed the signs that started to show that it was the bottom instead of being emotionally bearish because of COVID, which was fair, that was most people, then that was the buying opportunity of the century. But what were hedge funds doing? Because they're supposed to be hedging. They were shorting it and getting absolutely crushed and going out of business, right? So, uh, it, yeah, and there, Thomas makes the very good point. The economy is different than the market. You could make the argument right now that the economy is not weak, but markets are. I'm not making that argument necessarily, but even today, we saw more. There's a hell of a lot of people who have good paying jobs right now, right? So it depends on what metric you're looking at. But obviously, the Fed wants to crush demand. They want to kill jobs. They want people to get paid less. They want the housing market to come down because that will give them the excuse to eventually pivot. Coco Dice is asking me my opinion on the SPF and Voorhees debate. I hate to admit I didn't watch it. I uh, went about my life. I don't watch many things, to be honest. But, uh, you know, it was like, uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me. I've been traveling like crazy and I missed it. I mean, at the core, 
I think both of them have very good points. I think that I like Voorhees' idealism and he's correct about the principles. I also believe that there is a level of realisticness and pragmatic thinking that we need to have because regulation is coming whether we like it or not. Whether you think SBF is the guy to be pushing that narrative, I think it's fine. Personally, I like him a lot. Um, is up to you, but we need somebody there with a voice so that it's not just a bunch of political boomers who know nothing about this market regulating and legislating around it. So you can choose your white knight or your champion. Bitcoin doesn't really need one, but we definitely need to have a voice and we definitely know that the regulation is coming. So when regulation and legislation come, what you hope to get is a reasonable compromise and not an exceptionally one-sided one-sided policy. And I would say odds are without the crypto industry lobbying and without people like SBF out there, we will get something that mimics legacy markets and makes very little sense for DeFi. This is going to be the topic tomorrow, to be quite honest, right? This is going to be the topic tomorrow. We're talking about literally the topic tomorrow. I'm, I'm zooming back for exactly what we called it, but it's basically uh, the United States government versus DeFi. We're going to talk about the context of what DeFi looks like in a regulated world and what that regulation will mean. So we're going to talk about this exact topic a lot more tomorrow, and I'll do my due diligence in advance of that. We're going to have Sarah, Jared Gray, the CEO of SushiSwap, Julian Haas, the co-founder of DeFi Chain, and Nicholas Ramsroy, the CEO of Cadet. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Right? So we're going to have three experts who are working actively in DeFi and see what they have to say about it. Yeah. Uh, Tigalima wants to know if I got some charts. I mean, listen, the, I mean, I guess... I guess you can get excited about this, but this is Bitcoin right now. Like, what What are we doing here? Nothing, right? Everybody uh, everybody got super jazzed about a rise from 19,100 to 21,000. But we've been between 17 and 25 since June, and I don't see any reason for that to change. But in general, I think that this was a more bullish move than bearish and that things are kind of looking up. But like, what charts are we going to look at right now? What are you going to look at? Doge? Hit resistance. Shib, I don't know. ETH, still looking pretty decent. Kind of flagging, actually. I don't know. Let's look at the four-hour. That's ETH versus Bitcoin. I've been saying looks good. I'm going to draw this. Maybe it's not there, but yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty compelling. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. That looks like a very nice bull flag, and I would say that Ethereum is poised to outperform. Kind of doing something similar on the USD. But listen, ETH Bitcoin, I've been saying for quite a while here that uh, it's looking like it's going to wildly outperform. And it has been, but it might just need to cool off a little bit. And check this out. Right now, there was no bearish divergence, even though it went to overbought. And what you're getting forming now from this low to here is hidden, potentially hidden bullish divergence. If we see an elbow up here on RSI and we see RSI start to rise, we'll have hidden bullish divergence, which is a sign of continuation. Yes, we're already overbought, but never underestimate how overbought you can be. I mean, check out Doge. Doge got to 93 on RSI. Some would argue, yes, you're going to top eventually in overbought, but trying to time when that's going to happen is very hard. That's why I like the bearish divergence because people like Big Cheds would argue that when you get to overbought, that's actually when you're hitting the power zone, right? That's when things are just starting to get bullish. Yeah. So... Uh, interesting. But yeah, I don't, you know, we're going through these charts, Amazon getting smoked. I'll probably buy some more of that to be quite honest with you because long-term it's Amazon. Dollar 
hanging around. USD, JPY, hanging around. SPY, hanging around. There's really not that much to see in my opinion right now. So hard to give you any actual information. It is what it is. Can't stop that. Scott, what are your thoughts on Elon buying stocks and his intentions? Honestly, I didn't even see it. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Amir says, great show. Thank you. Yeah, Will was a great guest. Gave me a, a, a lot of context. Um, Green Cap Abe says, father, son vibes. Yes, he could be my, my son. He could be my son. Uh, just scrolling back, see if these are there are any other uh, comments here worth approaching. But otherwise, I think we're wrapping up. I didn't tell you guys about BitGet before, did I? Right down there. They got, they're running a promotion right now. You can get some extra free money by just depositing. Um, I should tell you the Discord is well on its way. I will remind you guys, listen, I found a community man manager, which is awesome. Uh, we've built out a Discord. I'm going to need some of you guys to be the first people in there as the guinea pigs to uh, test our concept and see if what we got is good. But I actually still need to hire more people, community managers, but I don't have brilliant people to contribute content. And I'm going to be very busy. It's going to be hard for me to do that myself. Of course, some analysts to share charts and things like that. So yeah, we got that going on. But yeah, I'm going to start a free Discord channel. Um, to avoid having it be a complete shit show, we'll probably just, uh, the, the plan is that all you'd have to do is sign up for BitGet. You don't need to trade, do anything, but at least it gives us some sort of metric to make sure that it's not just trolls and people have to do something actionable to get in there, but you don't have to actually trade or, or do anything like that yeah where did we apply scotty they drew you're in there wait we got that we got that dc in the matrix says i got lots of free time to help i gotta figure out a way for you guys to contact us my dms have been off on twitter for a very long time we'll figure that out and i'll get to you i don't want to say anything stupid right now and then open the open the floodgates and have a thousand people spam me so, but yeah, I'm going to need your guys' help and I can find no better place to uh, start than in the community and those of you who have been here for a while. So, would be nice. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, email. We do have, uh, yeah, email. I'm trying to think what the general email. Info at the wolf of all streets.io. Oh God, I just said that. Info at the wolf of all streets.io. That's the, where you can spam my, my assistant. Yeah, just give me your phone number. We call you. It's eight six seven five three zero nine. Eight six seven five three zero nine. Yeah, welcome to the Melkaverse, guys. That's all I got to for you today. Um, but I hope you see that we are always trying to improve here, always trying to offer more free things, more education, more information for you, and hopefully, yeah, it's good. Anyways, call Mike Jones. Uh, see you guys tomorrow, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're going to be there, right? You're, you're going to be there. You're not going to leave me like alone, are you? That'd be weird. That'd be weird. Yeah, we're going to Discord soon, guys. Get ready for that. Peace. Let's go. <laughs>